This is the story of the Lord's incarnation as Sri Krishna. It is called Sri Krishna Lila and comes in three parts. This is the first part called Bala Lila on the play of the boy Krishna in the cowherd settlement of Gokula and in the forest of Brindavana. Om Shri Krishnaya Paramatmane Namaha I bow to Lord Krishna, the Supreme Soul, abiding in the hearts of all beings. Introduction Vamshi Vibhushita Karadhanavanidara Gokula, 
where he grew up as the foster son of their chief Nanda and his wife Yashoda. As a child, he was mischievous and willful, charming all by his precocious acts. At the age of twelve, he went to Mathura, where he killed his uncle Kamsa, thus freeing the Yadavas from the rule of the tyrant. He grew up to be a hero, valiant and invincible, and gradually assumed leadership of the Yadavas and Vrishni clans, even though he never accepted the title of king. He suppressed many of the tyrant kings and made the Yadavas into one of the most powerful forces of his time. He founded his new capital on the island of Dwaraka on the western seashore and played an important part in shaping the cultural and political life of the India of his times, which was known as Bharata Varsha. Though he did not take up arms, yet he played a decisive role in the great war of the Mahabharata. As a man, he was a Mahayogi, the greatest of all yogis, totally unattached, having complete mastery over himself and of nature, capable of controlling the very elements if need be. His miracles were only an outflow of his perfect unity with God and therefore with nature. The spiritual gospel which he taught is known as the Bhagavata Dharma and is chiefly expounded in the Bhagavad Gita, Uddhava Gita and Anugita. The simplicity of his teaching was such that it could be followed by anyone, man, woman or child, unlike the Vedic teachings which were meant only for the elite. On the one hand, the Vedic religion had been elaborated into a vast system of complicated sacrificial rituals which could be deciphered and performed only by the Brahmins and conducted only by the Kshatriyas. On the other hand, it had developed the glorious philosophy of the Upanishads which required high intellectual ability and moral competency and training under a competent guru before it could be comprehended. The advent of Lord Krishna came at a time when the common man in Bharadavarsha was without a simple religion which would satisfy his emotional wants and elevate him spiritually without taxing him too much intellectually. The Bhagavata Dharma provided a devotional gospel in which action, emotion and intellect played equal parts and proclaimed Krishna as Ishwara or God who had incarnated himself for the sake of man and who could be communed with through love and service and who responded to the earnest prayers and deepest yearnings of the ordinary man. Thus, Lord Krishna was not only a precocious child, an invincible hero, and a Mahayogi, but he was the very God whose contact transforms even sinners into saints, ignorant men into sages, sense-bound beings into spiritual ecstatics, and even animals into devotees. 
Krishna is a human version of the metaphysical Satchidananda Brahman of the Upanishads, who took on a human form in order to help the ordinary mortal to rise to union with the formless Brahman through the path of meditation and samadhi or superconscious state as advocated in the Upanishads. All his human actions during the span of his earthly life are meant not only to bless his contemporaries and establish righteousness on earth, but to provide for the contemplation of posterity a spiritually potent account of his earthly deeds, by meditating on which they could establish with him a devotional relationship which his great devotees had during his lifetime. He is the expression of the redeeming love of God for man, which manifests itself in different ages and in different lands, bringing spiritual enlightenment and bliss into the otherwise dreary life of humanity. The theory of the avatar or the descent of God into the human form is one of the established beliefs of Vaishnavatheism and is very difficult for the modern mind to conceive. If we believe in the unborn, impersonal Godhead of Brahman, how can we accept the fact that it can be born as a human personality? The Vedantic view postulates that everything is divine. Every particle in the universe is imbued with a divine spirit. Far from the unborn being unable to assume a form, Vedanta declares that all forms are the endless reflections of that one unborn spirit who is without beginning and without end. The assumption of imperfection by the perfect is the whole phenomenon of this mysterious universe can, and can only be attributed to the divine Leela or play. Avatar means descent, and this descent is a direct manifestation in humanity by the divine in order to aid the human soul in his ascent to the divine status. It is a manifestation from above of that which we have to develop from below. It is to give the outer religion of man an inner meaning which will enable him to grow into his divine status that the avatar comes. The ordinary man has to evolve and ascend into Godhead, but the avatar is a direct descent into the form of humanity. The one is a birth from ignorance into ignorance under the shroud of Maya or the cosmic veil, and the other is a birth from knowledge into knowledge with all powers intact and a full awareness and consciousness of his supreme state. He is thus a dual phenomenon, for he appears human and is yet divine. This has to be, for the object of the avatar is to show that the human birth, with all its limitations, can still be made the means for a divine birth. If the avatar were to act in a superhuman way all the time, this purpose would be nullified. 
even human sorrow and suffering he might assume, like Christ or Sri Rama, in order to show that suffering itself might be the cause for redemption. The Krishna avatar is unique inasmuch as even in the hours of sorrow and travail, he showed himself to be a complete master of the situation, thus exemplifying how the one established in unity with the divine can remain unaffected in the midst of pain and sorrow. Hence, this avatar in the form of Krishna is known as Purna avatar or the complete descent of the entire divinity into the form of humanity. The Bhagavad Purana declares, Krishnastu Bhagavan Swayam. Krishna is the Supreme Lord in total. The charm of his avatar is the perfection with which he played every role he was called upon to play. He was a staunch friend, dutiful son, exciting lover and model husband to not just one but to all the women who desired him. There was none who called to him with intensity to whom he did not go with speed. Howsoever a man approaches me, in that same manner will I go to him, was his creed. In whatever guise a person looked upon him, a son, lover, friend or husband, he went to them in that very form in which they visualized him and satisfied their desires in that direction. At the same time he sublimated their desires and thus fulfilled their earthly lives and led them to eternal bliss. There was no one who approached him, whether saint or sinner, in hatred or fear or love, who did not attain liberation. The difference between a Kamsa who tried to kill him and a Kuchela who worshipped him is slight indeed. One approached him with hatred and the other with love, but both thought of him constantly and were thus rewarded with moksha or liberation. Mortal dread and antagonism can produce as much absorption in the mind as an object of love can. And if this object of dread happens to be God, concentration on Him, even though motivated by antagonism, must purify the person, just as a potent medicine consumed even with dislike must necessarily effect a cure. This is what the Bhagavad Purana declares. Thus Lord Krishna is not only the Satchidananda, the existence, knowledge, bliss of the Absolute, without any diminution or contamination of His perfection, but He is also the Uttama Purusha, the perfect person amidst all imperfect situations, the eternal boy, the paragon of masculine beauty who always remains in his spiritual loftitude, absolutely unaffected and unperturbed in every situation, be it amidst the poverty and hardships of the cowherd settlement, the rigors of a hermitage, the seductive charms of dancing beauties, the gory scenes of the battlefield, amidst a self-destructive holocaust of his own kith and kin, or the peaceful interludes with his friends.
as he himself taught, he lived in this world of dualities, as the lotus leaf in water, absolutely untouched and unaffected by the environment, a witness of the situation, but never a victim. The river of time collects much floatsome and jetsam on the way, and the story of the Lord's life has been embellished with a wealth of detail, perhaps true, perhaps imaginary. Fact and fiction, truth and fantasy are mixed up, but the final test of truth is time itself. It is the only touchstone. It deletes the dross and retains the gold. The story of a divine manifestation is always filled with mystery and defies all attempts at human analysis. But it has the quality of being Swayam Prakasha or self-illuminating. And therefore, he who starts to narrate it will find himself being illumined from within. For Krishna is the charioteer seated in the heart of everyone, the supreme guru. In and through the redundant detail which has woven itself round the story, through the centuries, it retains its breathtaking beauty, for it is dominated by the powerful influence of his enchanting personality, in which the wisdom of the seer is mingled with the charm and simplicity of a child, and the glory of a god gushes forth in an inexhaustible fountain of divine love and wisdom. The story of such a life can only be written by His grace and can only be understood by His grace. May that grace flow into us and inspire us and enlighten us and lead us to eternal bliss. Hari Om Tatsat Chapter 1 The Advent Five thousand years ago, the city of Mathura was ruled by the tyrant king, Kamsa. He was the chief of the tribe of the Yadavas, who were made up of many different clans, like the Bhojas, Rishnis, Dasharhas and Andhagas. He was reputed to be the incarnation of the wicked demon Kalanemi, and his actions proved the statement. None of the Yadava chiefs, dared to say a word against him, since Kamsa was known for his atrocities. In other parts of Bharatavarsha, also, there seemed to be an upsurge of wicked rulers, due to which there was an upsurge of unrighteous behaviour. For as the king, so the subjects. The earth was groaning under the weight of the iniquities. Unable to bear the load of wickedness any longer, she is said to have taken on the form of a cow and approached the Lord Vishnu in his divine abode of Vaikuntha. She reminded him of his promise that he would incarnate himself whenever righteousness declined. So be it, he said, I shall incarnate myself in the city of Mathura, in the clan of the Yadavas, as the son of Devaki and Vasudeva, to whom I have made a promise in another age that I would be born as their son. Pleased by this assurance, the earth goddess started to prepare herself for the advent of the Lord. The stage was being set for the mighty drama. 
all the lesser gods and celestial beings took birth in the Yadava clan in order to be ready to welcome the Lord and to participate in his leelas or playful exploits. For what reason would that unmanifest being want to manifest himself except to delight in his own game? The celestials knew that all this was to be the supreme culmination of all his incarnations, a tremendous play of the divine clothed in human form, inexplicable and mysterious as nature herself, yet simple and easy to love as a flower which can be appreciated even by a child, yet full of a deep and inner meaning to be interpreted by the scientist, the seer and the sage. So also the Lord's life, when looked at with the eyes of wisdom, will reveal to us not only the nature of the universe, but our own nature, for he is none other than the self within us. Kamsa had a sister called Devaki, who was as pure as he was depraved. Her beauty rivaled those of the celestials and could be dimmed only by the radiance of her mind, which was as perfect as any mortal woman's could be. She was a fitting recipient for the signal honour of being the mother of God. In her previous births, she had done many austerities in order to get the Lord as her son. This was her last birth, when for the third time she would carry the Lord in her womb. Vasudeva was also a noble soul belonging to the Yadava clan. When the curtain arose for the first act, the scene was one of revelry and joy, for Devaki, the only sister of Kamsa, was being given in marriage to Vasudeva. The bridal couple came out of the palace, preceded by Kamsa, and followed by a throng of relatives and royal guests. The fanfare of bugles and the sound of melodious songs filled the air, which was drenched with a perfume arising from hundreds of incense burners and jasmine flowers scattered in profusion. Devaki herself was just sixteen years of age, shining with happiness and beauty, laden with jewels, and her head bent in modesty, as well as the weight of flowers decorating it. She clung to her brother's arms as he lifted her into the flower-bedecked bridal chariot. Vasudeva jumped in beside her and prepared to start the journey to their palace. At this juncture, Kamsa ordered the charioteer to step down, and he himself took the reins, as if to show the extent of his love for his beloved sister. This act did not pass unremarked. That the king of the Bojas should stoop to be a mere charioteer for the sake of his sister was news indeed. The populace cheered wildly, for they, though they hated him, they could not but appreciate this particular deed, for Devaki was a great favourite. Moreover, it was always expedient to cheer the king whenever possible, for who knew what type of spies were around and whose head would roll on the morrow. Devaki, however, was supremely content 
her cup of happiness was full to the brim, and she cast a tremulous look of gratitude at this stern brother of hers, who had so far shown her nothing but kindness. It was her wedding day, and she was marrying the man of her choice. What more could she want? But her happiness was to be short-lived, as all human happiness is. The minds of the wicked are unpredictable. They know not the meaning of true love. They can love only as long as it benefits them. They are incapable of a love that transcends the self. This was soon to be proved. As the procession set out, the auspicious sounds of the conch and kettle drums were heard. The four mettlesome horses sprang forward and were whipped by Kamsa so that they went forward at a spanking pace. But hardly had they gone a few yards when the sky became overcast, thunder rumbled, lightning flashed, and a mighty voice split the clouds and froze the entire wedding party to immobility. Oh, Kamsa, beware! The hour of your death draws nigh. The eighth son of Devaki will kill you and deliver this land from your wickedness. For one startled second, none spoke, and Kamsa stared at the heavens, while from his nerveless fingers the rains fell unheeded, and there arose in his heart a fear so great that he trembled by the very force of the emotion. So awe-inspiring had the voice been. Devaki clung to her husband's arm and hid her face on his shoulder in terror. In a trice the sky cleared and the sun appeared and the rumbling died away and the excited people started to babble. But Kamsa wasted not a moment. Jumping out of the chariot, he caught hold of Devaki's jasmine-laden hair and pulled her down to the ground beside him. Drawing his sword from its scabbard, he hoisted it aloft in order to bring it down upon her defenseless and jewel-laden neck. At that moment, Vasudeva sprang down between them and caught hold of Kamsa's hand and said, O Kamsa, where has your honour gone? Where has your code of Kshatriya chivalry fled than you, that you can think of killing your own sister and that too at the time of her wedding before her desires have been fulfilled? O oh, hero, you have enhanced the fame of the Bojas by your heroic deeds and do you now stoop to such a heinous act? Death is certain for everyone. It may come today or a hundred years hence, but it is certain. Therefore a man who cares for his own welfare should never harm another. Those who do so will suffer both here and in the hereafter. This girl is your own sister and helpless like a doll. It is most unbecoming of you to think of killing this innocent creature. Kamsa shook off his restraining hand as if to say, Woman or girl or sister, what do I care? From today she is my enemy. For me, my own life is much more important than that of a sister. Again he lifted up his arm, and again Vasudeva restrained him, and tried another argument to stop him from his evil resolve. 
Oh, dear brother-in-law, he said, why do you have to kill Devaki? What has she done? According to the ethereal voice, it is only her child, and her eighth child at that, who is fated to kill you. Spare her, therefore, and I give you my word as a man of honour to bring to you every child of ours, be it boy or girl, for you to do with as you wish. This logic seemed to work. At last the threatening arm was lowered, and the cruel hold in Devaki's hair was loosened. Kamsa turned and looked piercingly at Vasudeva. This what you say is true. I know you for a man of honour, and I shall believe your word. Moreover, I have ways and means of seeing that you do not forget your promise. Go and take her with you. I can no longer bear to look at her face. A moment ago there was none so dear to him her sister, and now there was none so hated. Without a backward glance, Kamsa left the couple stranded on the streets and drove off as the people, trembling with fear, made way for him. Outwardly they still their joy, but inwardly their hearts rejoiced when they thought of his approaching end, and they blessed Devaki with a child every year, so that the time would pass quickly, and the eighth child, who would be their deliverer, would be born in eight years. Sadly, Vasudeva escorted his bride to his own house, unaccompanied by musicians and dancing girls. An hour ago they were the most envied couple in the whole kingdom, and now there was none who dared to look at them. The people's prayers came to pass, and within a year Devaki gave birth to a lovely baby boy. The umbilical cord had hardly been cut when Vasudeva hurried to Kamsa's palace, disregarding Devaki's pleas that she should be allowed to nurse the child at least once. For a man of wisdom, there is no object that he cannot give up, and no sorrow that he cannot bear. Impressed by Vasudeva's adherence to truth and his extreme equanimity, Kamsa said, Let this child be taken back. He poses no threat to me. It is only from your eighth child that I am destined to die. Take the infant back to my sister and tell her that her brother is not cruel, as cruel as she thinks. Far from being happy at this show of leniency, Vasudeva was perturbed at this unexpected turn of events, for he well knew how vacillating the minds of the wicked were. One day he would speak thus, and the next day he would change his mind, and by then they would have become attached to the infant. It would have been easier to have parted with it now, when it lay quiescent and unresisting in his arms, then later, when it would start to smile and talk and wind its arms round his neck and heart, and thus make the parting more heart-rending. So Vasudeva left the palace with bent head, clutching the child and trying not to look at it, trying not to love it too much, for as a wise man he knew it was better not to become too attached to something from which he would soon have to be parted. Six years flew by on wings, and every year saw the birth of another baby boy to the couple. Vasudeva would faithfully take each child to Kamsa, who would return it as a gift. By all rights the couple should have been blissfully happy. They had each other, they had six lovely boys, 
each more beautiful than the last, and they kept to themselves without mixing in court life and intrigue. They said their prayers and purified themselves by vows and fasts in order to prepare themselves for the advent of their eighth child, who would be the Lord himself. But all the time they felt as they were balanced on the edge of a precipice. No one could tell when the delicate balance would be upset and they would be plunged into the swirling waters below. It was at this time that the celestial sage Narada went to the court of Kamsa in order to play his part in hastening the advent. If Kamsa started showing signs of leniency, the Lord would take longer to incarnate himself, for it is only when wickedness reaches its zenith that an incarnation is called for. So armed with his veena, he entered the audience chamber of the king. Kamsa hardly glanced at him, for he did not consider a mendicant like him, who went about singing the Lord's praises to be worthy of respect. Narada, however, was unperturbed. Strumming his veena, he said softly, I hear, O king, that you are not keeping too well these days, not at the peak of your powers or observation as you were before. What? Kamsa said, rising up in anger. What makes you say such an arrant nonsense? I never felt better in my life. Now that the king had got up, Narada quietly took his seat, uninvited, and continued amicably. I hear that you had your sworn enemy within your grasp, and yet you let him slip away like a wily fish from the hook of an inexpert angler. You heard wrong, shouted the enraged king. There's no enemy, either big or small, who has ever come within my grasp, who has lived to tell the tale. But what can you, a mere singer of ballads, know of deeds of valour? I think your memory is getting poor, O Kamsa, Narada taunted. Have you forgotten the prophecy at the time of Devaki's marriage that you have allowed six of her children to slip from your grasp? Is this the action of a shrewd man? And why not, shouted the irate king, since you seem to know so much about it. You should also know that it was the eighth child who was denounced in the prophecy, and not the first, or sixth, or any other. Poor Kamsa, Narada commiserated in his gentle voice. There's so much you're ignorant of. But don't make the mistake of underestimating your enemy. He is Vishnu, the master magician, who can delude the entire world into believing anything. He can make eight into one, and one into eight. If you count from the top downward, the last is the eighth. But if you count from the up bottom upwards, what happens? The first becomes the eighth, and if you keep them in a circle and count, what happens? Any one of them could be the eighth. You are living in a fool's paradise, my poor man, lulled into a feeling of false security, which is exactly what he wants you to feel. Moreover, you should realize that this is all a master plot on the part of the gods to kill the demons. You, O Kamsa, are the great Asura of old called Kalanemi. The rest of your clan, with a few exceptions, 
are all devas or gods involved in the mighty plot to annihilate you together with your kind. Of this you are ignorant, poor Kamsa, and that is why at long last, even though I know you despise me, I came to warn you, for I am a true well-wisher of mankind. I want nothing but the well-being of the universe. So saying, Narada quietly left the room, strumming his veena just as he had come, unannounced and unescorted. He left behind a stunned Kamsa, aghast at his stupidity in having let six children go free. There was not a moment to be lost. Six years of folly had to be retrieved in a day. He summoned all his evil counsellors, like Keshi, Putana and others, and started a regular campaign of suppression of the Yadavas with the backing of his father-in-law, Jarasandha, the powerful king of Magadha. A campaign of terror followed, in which he mercilessly murdered all those whom he suspected of being devas, so that there was a panic amongst the good people, and a general exodus out of the city, into the outlying districts where they went into hiding. Vasudeva sent his first wife, Rohini, to the house of Nanda, the cowherd chief of Gokula, who was a friend of his. Kamsa's father, Ugrasena, remonstrated with him and warned him of the consequences of his atrocious deeds. Kamsa spoke not a word, but quietly had his father removed and clapped into jail. Then he turned the full force of his fury on his sister and husband. One by one their children were taken up and smashed to death on a rock in front of their horrified eyes. What is it that the wicked will not resort to in order to save their own skin? Vasudeva's worst fears were realized. Devaki saw but one child being killed, and then mercifully she swooned away. Dry-eyed and stony-hearted, Vasudeva watched till the bitter end, as one by one his bonny babies were smashed to pulp. One thought alone sustained him, the thought that he and his wife were still alive and capable of bearing children, and that whatever happened, however much they suffered, theirs would be the fortune to be the instruments by which the divine purpose would be fulfilled. Only two more years, he exulted, and then the prophecy would come true. Their work on earth would be done, and the reason for their birth accomplished. So great was his faith and devotion that not even the ghastly scene enacted before his eyes had the power to move him. But even this hope was soon to be dashed, for Kamsa decided that the best place for the straitress couple would be the dungeon next to his father, where he would be able to keep an eye on their doings. So he clapped them in jail with guards and duty, night and day. Soon Devaki conceived for the seventh time. The land was groaning under the weight of Kamsa's iniquities, and the prayers of the people were rising in a constant stream. So it is said that the Lord Vishnu decided that he could not wait for another year before incarnating himself. Such is the force of mass prayer, as Narada had foreseen. The Lord commanded his shakti, or force of action, as follows. O Devi, do thou go to Vraja, the cowherd settlement, to the house of Nanda, 
where Rohini, the wife of Vasudeva, has taken refuge. My spiritual power, known as Shesha, has already entered the womb of Devaki. Transplant the fetus from her womb into Rohini's. Soon after, I shall incarnate myself in Devaki's womb, and you, O Devi, will be born as Yashoda's daughter, and will be the bestower of boons to all, and will come to be worshipped on earth under many names. Being thus ordered by the Lord, the goddess transferred herself to earth and accomplished all that she was expected to do. And the news was bruited abroad that Devaki's seventh pregnancy had been aborted. Hearing the news, Kamsa suspected another trick and went himself to the dungeon in order to find out the truth. Is it true that you conceived for the seventh time, he thundered. Yes, replied Devaki meekly. Then what happened to the child, he inquired suspiciously. I don't know, she whispered, and in truth she did not, for who can know the ways of God? She had been pregnant till a few days ago, and then suddenly she felt her womb to be empty. Kamsa ruminated for a while. Trick or no, the next one would surely be the eighth, and since prevention was better than cure, he decided to prevent the couple from conceiving at all, and gave instructions for heavy chains to be brought, with which he bound them with his own hands, Vasudeva to one pillar and Devaki to the opposite, thus ensuring that there was no possibility of any physical contact. Strict orders were given that they were not to be let out together. Satisfied with his handiwork, he left, banging the dungeon doors together and shutting out the last rays of their hope. Oh, God, what about your promise, groaned Vasudeva. Are you going to desert us now in the hour of our darkness? We have none but you to aid us. So saying, he bowed his head and was plunged in grief. At that moment, the Supreme Lord, the protector of the universe, entered into the mind of Vasudeva, so that he began to shine in splendor like the sun. Such bliss transformed his face and aspect that his poor wife fell bound to exclaim, O oh, husband, she cried, what is that secret thought that is drenching you with happiness? What have we unfortunate creatures to be happy about? O oh, unlucky parents, we have been forced to see our children murdered before our very eyes. Our only hope was to witness the birth of our eighth infant. And now even that hope has been dashed to the ground. What have we to rejoice about? There is a form which is shining in within my heart, O oh beloved, Vasudeva exclaimed in rapture, which thrills me to the very core of my being, so that I can no longer feel the hardness of the pillar on which I am bound, nor the weight of the chains which are biting into my flesh. O oh husband, she cried, Play describe this vision in detail to me, so that I too can share your rapture. So Vasudeva transmitted to his wife, through the medium of the mind, that world-redeeming aspect of the Supreme Divine, who is the all-comprehensive being present in all, including herself, and she received the mental transmission, even as the eastern horizon receives the glory of the full moon. Thus did she conceive the Lord, mentally, through her husband, Vasudeva. When the jailer opened the dungeon doors the next day, 
he saw the place bathed in a divine radiance, and Devaki transformed and shining, as if within her she carried a living fire, a fire which would consume all the evil in the world, and leave it pure and shining. Hurriedly closing the doors, he ran as fast as he could to the king, to give the news that something strange and wondrous had happened to Devaki. Kamsa went post-haste to investigate. It was just as the jailer had described. When he opened the doors, his eyes were dazzled by such a blinding flash of burning blue brilliance that he staggered back, unable to bear it. He thought to himself, Surely the Lord Vishnu, who is to be the cause of my death, must be within her. Never before have I seen her with such divine luster. What shall I do now? If I kill her outright, I shall surely be condemned by all. So I shall wait for the child to be born, and then kill him. He gave orders that the gods were to be doubled, and the chain strengthened, and every precaution taken, so that none entered or left the dungeon. All his instructions were carried out faithfully, but neither Devaki nor Vasudeva cared, or even noticed what was happening around them. They were bathed in a sea of bliss, and as the child within her womb grew bigger, Devaki's joy knew no bounds. She did not feel the discomforts of her position, nor was she worried as to ways and means of protecting the child when it was born, and caring for it till it grew old enough to kill her brother. Such mundane considerations worried her not a whit, for she had time only to meditate continuously on that wondrous form which filled her being and suffused her with delight. Kamsa, too, was in a very similar state. His mind sharpened in single-pointed concentration on Lord Vishnu. Through intense fear, his entire world was filled with Vishnu, even though it was a Vishnu as avenger and killer. Waking and sleeping, Kamsa's world was peopled by Vishnu alone. This was truly an enviable state, one which meditating yogis strive in vain to achieve. Thus did Kamsa pass the ten months preceding the advent of the Lord in constant contemplation. Thus ends the first chapter of Sri Krishna Leela, Nepal.
Good evening. 